One of the pastors asked me to uh, put together this series. I think the underlying concern was the sense that Adventists have had a lot of good things to say about the second coming, about the end of time, and about the judgment, but that somehow in the midst of all of that, some things had crept in that seemed to have left many of us depressed, disturbed, fearful, and unproductive uh, in our spiritual growth. Among those things that troubled and disturbed, above all else, was a couple of statements that I'm going to share with you today, a topic we call the judgment of the living. I suspect you're familiar with these statements. They're found in Great Controversy, uh, pages 490 and 491. And I've put them on the screen here so we can revisit them and remind ourselves of the words. It says, Solemn are the scenes connected with the closing work of atonement. You can already see where it's going. Uh, the most frightening, troubling statement in all of the writings that I read as a young man. Momentous are the interests involved therein. The judgment is now passing in the sanctuary above. Soon, none can know how soon, it will pass to the cases of the living. In the awful presence of God, our lives are to come up in review. At this time, above all others, it behooves every soul to heed the Savior's admonition. Watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Uncertainty, concern for the judgment. Page 491, the righteous and the wicked will still be living. Now this is the one that really got to me. The righteous and the wicked will still be living upon the earth in their mortal state. Men will be planting and building, eating and drinking, all unconscious that the final irrevocable decision has been pronounced in the sanctuary above. Before the flood, after Noah entered the ark, God shut him in and shut the ungodly out. But for seven days, the people knowing not that their doom was fixed, continued their careless, pleasure-loving life and mocked the warnings of impending judgment. So, says the Savior, shall also the coming of the Son of Man be, silently, unnoticed as the midnight thief, will come the decisive hour which marks the fixing of every man's destiny, the final withdrawal of mercy's offer to guilty men. Now, one option that we could consider is just to say, this statement was a mistake. You know, I mean, it just, it goes too far. Too scary, too troubling. But I'm not inclined to go that way, and I suspect most of you are not either. I believe that God had a purpose in this woman. I believe that he had a purpose in this message. And I also believe what she said when she said, before you spend too much time with my writings, make sure you have your ducks in a row when it comes to Scripture. 
because if you don't understand Scripture, you're going to misuse what I say. And over and over again, in her lifetime, people took statements of hers and used them in ways that were out of harmony with Scripture. It might amuse you to know that during her own lifetime, she received letters from people who used statements of hers to chide her for where she was at that particular point in time. Now, if they could do that while she was alive, is it any surprise that that could happen after her passing? So I think it's extremely important that when we look at a statement like this, and I have to tell you, as a teenager, it scared the wits out of me. It troubled me, and, and it made joy in spiritual life a very difficult thing to, to, to find. But I believe that the statement comes within a larger scriptural context that puts it in an entirely different light. And I want to share that with you today. It's going to be a Bible study. It's going to take a little time, but I believe the outcome will be worth it. Last week we studied from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, primarily today we'll be in the Gospel of John. Because another thing that I found is when I try to solve a problem by picking and choosing texts from all over the Bible... I'm the one doing the picking and choosing, and there's all too much of a chance that the outcome will have a little too much of me in it. And I find that when a Bible writer, a specific Bible writer, has addressed an issue, the safest place is to dig deep there and see how it comes together. So let's go to the Gospel of John, and uh, we'll begin with John chapter 12 and verse 31. We'll look at the judgment in the New Testament because... If our option is not to say there is no judgment, she was wrong on that. If that's not the option we're going to, and I'm not going there, then we need to understand better what is the judgment, what is the end time judgment, how do we face it, and what is God's purpose. God's judgment on the world did not just happen at the end of time. God's judgment on the world has already occurred, according to Scripture. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets were constantly pointing forward to the future and saying, the time is coming when God will judge the world. And then Jesus comes along and he says, John 12, 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, how could you possibly understand that? If the prophets had all said, judgment is coming, and then a prophet comes along and says, judgment is now, what does that mean? This is the judgment. This is, in some sense, the full, final judgment on the world that the prophets had been pointing forward to. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Uh, please advance. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, back up now, <laughs> just one, one tap, yeah. Now, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What was the judgment of the world according to Jesus? It was the time of his lifting up. Now in the Gospel of John, he doesn't use the word cross as a symbol of Christ's death and resurrection. He uses the word lifting up or exaltation. When Jesus is lifted up from the earth on the cross, he will draw all unto him. The context for the judgment on the world is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, how is this possible? 
that judgment could be on the entire world in one person, only if that person in some way represents the entire human race. And that's the picture we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus came as our representative on the entire human race. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he rose from the grave, he did that as humanity, as a whole body of the human race. Moving forward. You see, as the prophets looked forward to the end-time judgment, they looked forward to a day when God would judge and certain things would occur. There were cosmic signs of the end, according to the prophets. When judgment would be coming, there would be earthquakes, there would be darkness, there would be resurrection. And the interesting thing is when Jesus died on the cross, those very same things occurred. If you knew your Old Testament at that time, you would realize this is the judgment, that somehow on the cross here, the judgment of God on the world is taking place. Please advance. Now, in the Old Testament, one piece of judgment that we need to understand is judgment is not just negative. I think growing up, when I heard of judgment, I was thinking of something really negative. Now, somebody once jokingly said to me, Jews don't think of the judgment as negative. When they think of the end-time judgment, they think that they're going to sue and win heavy damages. <laughs> See, now, that's good news, okay? Uh, you, you look forward to that kind of judgment, that where, where God will reverse the troubles of this world. Well, I think the Jews have a point on that, and we should be listening to that point. The point is that in Scripture, judgment is always two-sided. It's positive, and it's also negative. For example, in the Garden of Eden, there was a negative judgment on Adam and Eve. Uh, there was childbirth pain. There were thorns. There was sweat. There was exile from the Garden. But God also judged them positively. He said, I will put enmity between you and the serpent. And he gave them coat, coats of skin so that they wouldn't freeze to death in the new environment that they had to face. God judged them negatively, but he also judged them positively. You go to the story of Cain. God judges him negatively. He exiles him from the rest of his people, but what does he also do? Puts a mark on him so no one will kill him. He judges him positively and negatively. In the flood story, the human race is judged negatively. It is destroyed, and yet it's judged positively. There was opportunity for everyone to be saved if they would accept God's plan. So this positive, negative, judgment is always two-sided. The cross of Christ is a two-sided judgment, just like the others of Scripture. Very important to, to understand as we go back to texts uh, like the one we saw at the beginning. So in the Old Testament, judgment was both positive and negative. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 shows us the negative side of judgment. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be what? A sin offering. What's he talking about? The cross of Christ to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin where? In sinful man. Now, how does that happen? On the cross of Christ, human sin, the entire human race, that sin was condemned in the cross of Jesus Christ. But there's also a positive side to the Christ event. 
if you'll advance. Acts 13, 32 to 33, it says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by what? Raising up Jesus. Now, wait a minute. It was nice that Jesus got raised from the dead. You know, if I were in his condition, I'd want to be raised from the dead too. You know, hallelujah. Life is good. You see, but what does that have to do with me? How does the resurrection of Jesus cause my life to be different? How does it mean that God's promises somehow become real to me in a way that they weren't before? Only if Jesus Christ represented the entire human race. If he represented the entire human race, then when he came up out of the grave, in some sense I did too. One more, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Uh, if you're a young person, you say, Yes, right, in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Somehow, the promises of God, that what God will do for the human race, are activated in Jesus Christ. That through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is placing a blessing. He is placing uh, promises and blessings upon the human race that were activated by this event. So, what is this all about? Friday in Jerusalem. Jesus is hanging on the cross. It is the judgment of the world in the person of Jesus Christ. God comes down with the angels, unseen by human eyes, but gathers around the cross. The judgment is set. The books are opened. And as they look through the books, they look at thousands of years of human sin, thousands of years of rebellion, thousands of years of abuse and uh, wickedness. And they look at that record, and it is judged how? Negatively. And the end result is that Jesus Christ, the representative of the human race, is executed according to the covenant. He suffers the full consequence of human sin in every sense. The judgment is on him, but it's on the entire human race. The judgment adjourns for 36 hours, and then it reconvenes outside a tomb not too far away. Once again, the judgment is set. The books are opened, and now what is examined is 33 and a half years of perfect righteousness, 33 and a half years of obedience to God, 33 and a half years of perfect faithfulness. And God says the words of the song that we heard just before, well done, my child. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And Jesus comes out of the tomb, but he doesn't come out alone. Because as the representative of the entire human race, when he comes out of the tomb, in some sense we do as well. You see, the judgment at the cross 
gives two messages about the human race. Message number one, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, rebellious, hopeless, worthless. But message number two, in Christ, you are acceptable, full of value. You are everything to me. You are faithful. You are beautiful. It's two messages about the human race. It may be painful to hear, and yet it conforms with reality because every one of us knows in our heart that there's something seriously wrong, and yet there's something hopeful and beautiful about human existence, something valuable and worthwhile. You see, the gospel speaks to the reality of this life. And when Paul defines the gospel, he defines it as the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And many people look at that and they say, what does that mean? You know, this is something that happened to somebody else a long time ago. What does that mean? If Jesus Christ represents the entire human race, it means everything. It's a judgment on the whole human race. God is saying two things about humanity. These are two inalienable truths. The truth of who we are and what we have done and what we have been and the truth of who we are and what we can do in Jesus Christ, what we can be. Those are both truths. They are both realities. And the gospel is the full combination of both. There's a temptation in every pulpit. It's a temptation to preach part of the gospel. And part is better than none. But if we emphasize only the sweet side, God loves you, everything is fine, everything is good, just accept him, just trust him. Many go home knowing that the deeper, darker reality is there. Knowing that somehow something is incorrigibly wrong. And the gospel on the other side, the temptation is to constantly be telling the people, look what miserable sinners you are. And pounding on the people with how horrible they've been. The gospel tells both truths. The human race is wretched and miserable. You and I have failed. We have a history of disgrace and shame and abuse and wickedness. But you and I also have a history in Jesus Christ, a history of perfect righteousness and faithfulness. And in the cross, these two meet together, and that's what the gospel is. But the gospel, excuse me, the judgment does not stop at the cross. In the New Testament, it continues in the preaching of the gospel. If you could advance, please. One more. The New Testament gospel continues, the judgment continues in the preaching of the gospel. One more, please. John 3, verses 18 through 21. Whoever believes in him is not judged, but whoever does not believe stands judged already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. One more, please. You will notice I highlight the word judged. It's the same word in the Greek repeated three times, the same concept. Judgment is both positive and negative. 
Whoever believes in him is not judged. Whoever does not believe stands judged already. What is the difference between the two? When judgment comes, what is the difference between the two? Whether or not they have believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, the gospel isn't about you and me. Ultimately, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about who he is, what he has done, and how much he cares about you and me. And he was willing to become our representative. He was willing to go through everything that we have gone through to have all the consequences of everything that we have done because it was the only way that we could become what he is. So, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, whenever Jesus is preached, including his own preaching, judgment takes place. I tell pastors, Sabbath morning, 11 o'clock, is judgment hour. Because whenever the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit is present and is drawing people to receive both messages, a full realization of our sin, a full awareness of how far we have slid from where God is, and yet a full awareness of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and of how acceptable we are in him. That tension is where the gospel plays. Why would anybody reject the gospel? Who wouldn't want to get rid of the mess that you're in? Who wouldn't want something so beautiful that's free? Verse 20 tells us. John 3, verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light, the gospel light. Why would anyone hate the gospel? It's free. It's beautiful. It's a gift. Because they do not want to come into the light for fear of what? That is, deeds will be exposed. Remember the story? The children's story? What does it feel like when you're running for your life and suddenly your pants fall down? That's kind of a little bit of what happens when we become fully aware of our sin. There is shame. There is guilt. There's a sense of nakedness. There's a sense of, oh no, I don't want people to know. There's something deep down inside of us that does not want to be exposed. Above all else, keep that hidden. Every one of us has secrets, closets that are dark and they are deep. And the gospel goes as deep as those closets if we will allow it. Because the deeper you allow the gospel to go, the more complete the freedom that results. You see, one of the greatest barriers to receiving the gospel is our natural human tendency to hide, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, to hide from God, to hide from an awareness of our own sin. And this is why many reject the gospel, because we like to keep our secrets. But the gospel is a package deal. As we give ourselves as we yield up who we are, as we tell the truth about ourselves. That's what confession is. Confession isn't babbling some words that mean nothing. Confession is telling the truth about yourself. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confessing is simply telling the truth about ourselves. It's a willingness to get down on our knees before God and say, God, 
If there is something that stands between me and you, I want to know about it, I want to give it up now. And the beautiful thing about it is he already knows. He already knows your closets. He already knows your secrets. Why not open them to the fresh air of the gospel? You see? Sabbath morning can be judgment hour. But it's a joyous hour because judgment is positive as well as negative. And when we hear the judgment of that song, well done, my child. Because you see, you and I were raised with Jesus. And that means his well done is ours. His perfect righteousness is ours. His faithfulness is ours. And when we receive what Christ has done, when we say yes to his judgment, we are freed from the past and we become open to a new life in him. Continue to John chapter 5, please. There's one more text. John 5 and verse 22 through 25. Our Father judges no one but entrusts all judgment to the Son. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. Now, you may not know it from your English translation, but in the Greek it's a present tense. It's not will have eternal life. It's has eternal life. It is possible now in this life to begin tasting the fruits of eternity. It is possible now in this life to have the love, the joy, and the peace that God holds out to the redeemed. You see, eternal life is a present reality. If it isn't, it's probably because we're hanging on to the other life. We're hanging on to those closets, those dark spaces. The one who hears his words and responds, present tense, believing in him, has eternal life, will not enter into judgment. He has crossed over from death to life. You see, you don't have to fear the judgment because you can have it now and get it out of the way. But judgment doesn't end with the preaching of the gospel. There's a third aspect of judgment. Adventists were not wrong. Ellen White was not wrong in her emphasis on the end-time judgment. It was a special emphasis for the time in which we live. But you know what happens sometimes? When you do evangelism, you focus on the things other people need to learn. And you sometimes neglect the things that they already knew. And that's what happened in 1888. Uh, we, the first generation of Adventists, were gospel-loving, Jesus-loving Christians. But we were preaching the specialized things so long that the next generation didn't know the gospel. And it had to be rekindled uh, from that time and on. And so it is today. If we want to understand the end-time emphasis in the gospel, we need to see it in its larger biblical context or statements like we saw at the beginning will drive us mad. So judgment does not end with the preaching of the gospel. It also has an end-time feature. John 12 and verse 48 gives us the end-time feature of judgment. I want you to look at this text carefully because this makes a crucial step that helps us in our understanding. Jesus says, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will judge him when? In the last day. One tap, please. In the last day. 
So this is end-time judgment. There is a judgment at the end. There is a pre-advent judgment. There is, if you will, an investigative judgment at the end. But Jesus makes a crucial distinction. You see, what scared me about those statements at the beginning was the sense that I could give myself to Christ. I could be baptized. I could do all that I could do, try to be like him, try to do the right thing, and somewhere... I don't even know when somebody else is going to make a different decision and say, sorry, door's closed, and I'm going to bang my head and fall down to hell. That's what I was thinking as a young person when I heard those statements, that in the end it was out of my control, that somehow the judgment at the end would reverse the decisions that I made in this life. That's no way to live. That's fearful, that's hopeless, that's uncertain. Notice what Jesus says. There is a judge. Now, let's watch carefully who that judge is. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. What is the judge? That very word which I spoke will judge him at the last day. In other words, what is the end time judgment about? It's all about the judgments we pass on ourselves now. In other words, the judgment at the end is not going to reverse the decisions I made here. It will ratify them. When Jesus encountered people and they responded to him, Jesus says, at the end of time, the judgment at the end, my words will be the same basis of judgment then as it is now. There is no shifting when it comes to that. Once more, got a little illustration to try to put this together for us. There are three phases of judgment in the Gospel of John and uh, by extension through the New Testament. Three taps, please. Judgment number one is judgment on the cross. One more, please. It's judgment. All right, something's messing up. That's okay. Judgment number one is judgment at the cross. It is judgment on the entire human race, but in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's judgment on the entire human race in one person. And it's a judgment that says two messages about the human race. It's a message about our depravity and our lostness on the one hand, and a message about how acceptable we are to God in Jesus Christ. It's a double message of the human race. That is the gospel. You can't, you know, get away from that message because in Jesus Christ that message has been embedded in the entire human race. It is who we are. Both of these are the truth. But judgment continues in the preaching of the gospel, and that judgment is also on the entire human race one by one, in the course of history. Whenever the gospel is preached, judgment takes place. So judgment number two is based on judgment number one. Whenever the cross of Christ is preached, whenever that twofold message on the human race is preached, people judge themselves. They either draw closer to God or they pull themselves further away. Three more, please. There's also judgment at the end. But judgment number three 
is based on judgment number two. Judgment number three ratifies in heaven the decisions that we made on earth. And there are a number of texts, Matthew 18 being a significant one, where Jesus says to the disciples, what you judge on earth will be judged in heaven. That's good news, folks. It's telling us there's not going to be a disjunct between the heavenly judgment and the earthly one. The two will be in concord. Judgment number three is based on judgment number two, and judgment number two is based on judgment number one. That is the larger biblical picture. Now let me get back to the judgment of the living. What do you do with those horrific statements? Simply this. The judgment of the dead is the end-time judgments ratifying of all those judgments that took place in the course of Christian history, how people responded to the cross as the message was given to them in various forms and ways. The judgment of the living is that point in time when judgment number three and judgment number two are the same. When they occur at the same time, judgment number two on earth, judgment number three in heaven. The judgment of the living is that moment when there's the final proclamation of the gospel in this world. And every person on earth has one final opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every person on earth becomes settled in that response, either yes to Jesus Christ or no. And do you know what we call that? In other words, the close of probation. That's what the judgment of the living is all about. It's not some kind of double jeopardy. No, we won't know when the close of probation comes. We won't know that moment. But if we know whose side we are on at that moment, it won't matter, right? Because we will already have made that firm and final decision. It will be fixed. It is not some terror that will strike us when we least expect it. The purpose, I believe, of her message was to call us to seriousness about every moment of every day, to recognize that it's possible for people to drift. It's possible for people to be comfortable with those dark closets inside of themselves, that to not really confront their own sin, to not really take seriously what Christ has done for us, to put it off for another day as Felix did. It's so easy for us to do that. And a little lady came along and said, don't you realize you don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow? The only safe course of action is today if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart. Don't wait for tomorrow. Today is the day. You see, ultimately, the judgment is about Jesus Christ. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done. It's about whether or not we allow ourselves to be defined on his terms or ours. You see, the gospel is so, so critical. The problem with judge justification by works is that if I in any way can save myself, if there's anything I could do to save myself, it would be a selfish act. Anything I do nice for you, because I want God to be nice to me. It's a selfish act. I'm trying to earn something. It's a sin. The only genuine good work a human being can do is a good work that comes in gratitude 
for what God has done. If we are right with God, if we have confidence in him, if we are, as some call it, saved, then the good works we do are not in order to earn God's favor, but in order to spread his favor around to others. You see? So it is only in the gospel of the judgment. It is only there that we realize it isn't what I've done. What, what is the truth about me, according to the gospel? I'm hopeless. There's nowhere to go. I'm wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If I'm going to earn my way out of that mess, it's like paying that $900 billion from last week. Can't do it. If you're oppressed by a sense of your failure, if you're oppressed by your history, if you feel like your life has been worthless and so on, that's the Holy Spirit saying, you got half the gospel. You're almost home. You see? This message really ultimately is about people who think they're okay. And they're the ones that need to realize the gospel has to clean all the way through. But so many people, so many Adventists are fully aware of their sinfulness, fully aware of how far short they are. And to them, they need to hear the other side of the gospel. And that side is it's yours. It's free. It's paid for. Your sin was condemned and judged at the cross. It's not going to happen again unless you want it back. If you want it back, you can have it back. But your sin was cared for at the cross, and now his resurrection becomes yours in Jesus Christ. And that's good news. The judgment of the living is simply a point in time when the relationship you have with Jesus now becomes permanent for eternity. If you are right with Christ today, you are ready if he comes today. You see, that's the message. Judgment number three will not cast a different judgment than the one you place on yourself today. And if you have not yielded your life to Christ, if you have not taken hold of the gospel, today's the day. Tomorrow's not the day. Today is the day. There's no better day to say, Lord, let's go to the bottom of this depth of sin. Let's deal with it once and for all. Let's confess it and receive the freedom of being right with God and Jesus Christ and having the joy of serving others for no ulterior motive than it's fun. And it's kind of the way God has treated us already. May God be with you. It was a serious message, but it was a serious statement at the beginning. You know, see? Sometimes we need to hear a serious message. But I want to leave you with another message. And that message is God gets serious with us because he wants us to be happy, because he wants us to know him for who he is and to love him for who he is. May God grant that to be your experience. Amen. Lord, the song says, Jesus, the friend of sinners, I pray, Lord, today that you would help us each to realize how much of a friend he was. Came down to this earth, became one of us, faced the challenges that you and I face in this life. He walked the ground that human beings walked. At the cross, he had laid upon him every sin, every misstep, every act of rebellion, every abusive act, every merciless act was all laid upon him. 
He became our friend so deeply, so closely, so intensely that it took him into the second death for us. That's the kind of friend he was. And because he's that kind of friend, he also took us out from that second death at his resurrection. And he took us into the light of your glorious approval, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that in the words of the little lady that we quoted at the beginning, where she said, you need not remain one moment longer unsaved. Salvation is not the work of a lifetime. It's the work of a moment that is followed by rejoicing for a lifetime. Lord, may not one person walk out of here without saying yes to you. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.